I heard, I heard some of you guys singing along to that. How many, how many of them are old enough to remember Judy Collins or remember the song? Or you remember, like it brings you back maybe to a place where you were, some, some place, some event, circumstances in life. Or some of you maybe you're not, were not old enough, but you remember, oh, I mean, I remember in that movie. It, it, it sort of carries this feeling with it. And the songwriter, of course, borrows from, Judy mentions that at the beginning, borrows it from this, this ancient Hebrew text called Ecclesiastes. Uh, this, this great king, the second wisest man who's ever lived, Solomon, pens of, among many, many texts in Scripture, but mostly in this section of, of Hebrew Scripture called wisdom literature. And wisdom literature made up by books like Proverbs and, and portions of the Psalms and Job and Ecclesiastes. And there's this section in Ecclesiastes where Solomon does many, many things. But the, the overarching point in this section, I want to look at it here in a second, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And, and in just a second, you can open your Bibles or turn on your iPads or smartphones and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. But the overall point of this passage is this idea that every, every aspect of life has a time. It has a timing, meaning you're at some time or another, it's going to hit you in the face. The good stuff, the great stuff, the beauty, that you, everything's going to come your way. You won't escape a piece of it unless you get out of here early, which involves dying. But eventually, every part of life is going to hit you in the face. There is a time at which you will experience every facet of what it means to be made in the image of God and yet living in a broken world and all of the different complexities that those things entail. However, the only challenges, is, challenges are that this passage brings up is, first of all, I have no idea what's the next time. Right? I know what time I'm in now, but this is sort of inherent in this, in this text. Is I, don't know what, I don't know what the next time that I'm going to walk into. And then secondly, I don't, even if I do, when I know the time, like what are going to be the unique challenges to that particular thing? What are, be, what are going to be the unique, the unique beauties to that particular time or timing? And so that's the big question. Life is this, everything's going to hit us. It's like a deck of cards, but it's, but it's been mixed up. You don't know the order of the cards, but you're going to hit every single card. And so here, here's the challenge that, here, here's why wisdom is so important to this. Because Solomon keeps saying, well, given that, given you don't know when and you don't know the what, what do you need more than anything else? What's this series about? Yeah, man, you had better get wisdom. That's why you had better seek for it. You better look for it more than gold, look for it more than silver, look for it more than anything else, more than spending your money or investing it well, no matter what it might be. Be willing to sacrifice anything for wisdom because you never know the next card. You never know the next time you're going to find yourself and the unique challenges. But you do need to have the necessary skills, the emotional, spiritual, rational, relational skills to be able to navigate amidst that next time in your life. We looked a couple weeks ago at um, this, this almost kind of uh, odd statement made about a particular group of people, the men of Issachar. First Chronicles chapter 12 says, the men of Issachar understood the times that they lived in and they knew what Israel should do. That's why wisdom applies here. You don't know what time will come next. You just know the time you're in. Wisdom will help you understand the times in which you are and know what you should do. And that's our goal. That's, man, I, that's our prayer as a church. That's our prayer as individuals, to know what time I'm in and to know what I should do. And so do I have a wise understanding of the seasons of the times that will hit me in the face? And so here, here are the times. Look, uh, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, look at verses just 1 through 4 with me. And he's going to introduce one particular time that I want us to spend our time on here this evening. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 1, he says, There is a time for everything, and a season for every activity under the sun. Now, he's going to go on the rest of this uh, poetic piece and describe those seasons and he does it in a poetic way he speaks of them in binaries he speaks of them in complementary pairs everyone comes to us in a binary or a complementary pair and uh he starts out with the most momentous events in life birth you know kind of the bookends of life he starts out with birth childbearing and then and then he ends with the death our own death 
he says, verse 2, there's a time to be born and a time to die. The next three pairs or binaries um, speak of various both creative as well as kind of destructive activities of people, of humans. Uh, Verse 2, he says, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. And then the next two pairs, which is what we're going to spend this evening looking at, talks about or have to do with human emotion. Verse 4, he says, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. That's the private level. Weeping and laughing happens behind closed doors. The public level is next. And a time to mourn and a time to dance. That's the public expression. What he's saying is both in your private, personal, interior life, behind closed doors, the places that no one knows about, there's going to be a time at which it will be very appropriate to weep. You will be hit with something that, that, that only you know the strength of, only you know the force of. No one else will quite get it. And it will be very appropriate for a time of mourning, a time of grief. And then publicly, too, there will be a time of mourning when, when things around you, it might be a catastrophe, it might be difficult circumstances, relationships, finances, whatever. Something will happen, a new timing will come, and it will be a very public thing. And there's appropriate place of mourning, even sort of a corporate communal mourning here. And so this series, we've been looking at what does wisdom have, or what does wisdom look like, maybe is a better way to put it, in a person's life. And this tells us that, that we need to ask this question. What does the wise life have to say about mourning, about grief, about expressing emotion when it comes to loss? And all the feelings surrounded around that, uh, around changing of seasons and difficulties. There was a book that, would, that was written a few years ago by Ronald Ritgers. Um, it was about the Protestant Reformation. It's about all these guys who, in you know the 15, early 1500s, were our, our church, our community is is the our uh, descendants of the Protestant Reformation. So about 1500 years into church history, starting in Europe, mostly Germany, guys like Martin Luther, we've heard that name before, start the Reformation. And this book, it's called the Reformation of Suffering, and it's kind of interesting. He traces how the church thought about suffering early, you know, before that. And then the Protestant Reformation hits, and this is like from 1517 on. And then how did they think about suffering, and did they get it right? You know, because we all have imbalances in a lot of places. And he says, the medieval church, you know, prior to the Reformation, typically saw suffering, um, or they tended to emphasize sort of uh, endure it, Stiff upper lip, almost a stoicism, and God will kind of smile a little bigger. You can almost add to your salvation a little bit. You kind of earn grace by endurance, by difficulty, by struggle. And so sometimes even putting yourself into it. Sometimes there's an emphasis on, I'm going to go into rigorous you know, spiritual disciplines for the purpose of getting a bigger smile on God's face, kind of getting more approval by God, having God's care and concern being closer to me because I'm going through such a hard time. And the reformers rightly were horrified by that. They said, no, that's not right. That's, you, you, the reason why God's with you through suffering is not because of you, because of him. Because he's loving. That's what the word grace means. It's all grace. It's pure grace. It's sheer grace. It has nothing, zero, zip, zilch, nada to do with you. And it has everything to do with God. And so they said, that is not what suffering is about. And so the Protestant reformers, uh, again, kind of rightly rejected that. But what, what they tended to do was, was kind of overemphasize and say, um, you have Jesus' attention and care. And they, they emphasized this idea that you never need to doubt Jesus' love, you, which you don't. You never need to question you never need to call into concern. And, and so when you do things like complain or, or, or doubt or question, it's kind of getting close to saying, well, God, I, you know, don't, don't you love me? And they go, no, 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 you don't have to question God. Of course he loves you. And so what they tended to do was, was to kind of minimize this idea right here. Lament. This idea, which there's a very deep spiritual 
tradition of in Scripture, lament. It means to, to mourn. It means to be sad. It means to be sorrowful. It means to kind of like fall down on the ground. Not, not necessarily because of anything I've done. It's not like an ownership thing. Like It's not a forgiveness, oh, I've blown it. It's just a look at the season. Look at the timing I'm in. Look what's going on. This isn't right. And it's just this deep inner soul brokenness. It's this deep inner soul sadness. And so he points out that even in the Protestant Reformation, though it got so many things right, there was this tendency to downplay the role that lament appropriately should play in the life of the follower of Christ, the one who was passionately following God and love with God and going through this broken life. And so it created this sort of culture and we, in some ways, maybe even kind of live in that culture today, which puts the emphasis on be joyful in suffering and accept God's will no matter what. And again, that's true. Are we to be joyful? Yeah. But sometimes a little bit so strong of an emphasis on that that it, it never recognizes maybe there's an appropriate place and that maybe even that place is helpful for discipleship for emotional healing in our lives and so kind of recorrecting that emotional response to pain to suffering here's what i'd like to ask you a question about as you think about i wonder as you look back think think back to when you were 12 years old okay if you're like younger than 12 you got to project yourself forward but i don't see too many people younger than 12 Think back to when you're like 12 years old. Think, think about the kind of environment just, just, just that you grew up in, the kind of models that you had and you know, who were kind of speaking into your life, shaping your life. And I wonder, when you grew up, generally, what was the model that, that you observed about what should be your emotional response to, to, to pain, to suffering, to challenges, to difficulties. And let me give you kind of four, and then I want to turn you loose. I want you to just spend like three minutes at your table just kind of, you know, saying what it is. And you don't need to go into depth as to, you know, here's what it is. You just say, I think this is kind of what I observed more. And, and I'll just give you kind of four, four categories. Maybe you, you, you have a, another one that kind of better describes it. That's fine. Would you say the model that you kind of watched was anytime difficulty, struggle, suffering came, the response was anger. Okay, and anger could be kind of it could be venting feelings wildly or it could just be kind of grumbling. It could be kind of just complaining the sort of I'm just frustrated, living in constant sense of frustration. Or was it was it stuffing? And stuffing would be kind of just uh, emotionally suppressing whatever response was evoked. Uh, It could it could look like denial um, but it's kind of, I'm just going to move on without really thinking about how this has affected me and how it will affect me. I'm just going to kind of you know, suppress it one way or another and move on. A fourth way is um, self-pity. Uh, this might just be kind of seeing yourself as a martyr, uh, kind of a woe is me. Um, probably what it might have done is sort of debilitated the person. They just sort of always lived debilitated, so wounded, by it, that, that they sort of live the rest of their life in this debilitated place. And then the fourth one would be acceptance. And by that I just mean a, a healthy talking about emotions and an appropriate expression of grief and frustration. But it, it was worked out in a healthy way, proper conversation, working it out, looking at what it means to, to move ahead but still taking into consideration that, if that makes sense. The four will be up on the screen, so you, if you don't write them down, don't freak out. Um, I want you to take three minutes around your table and just say, like, what, what models growing up do you think tended to be the models that kind of you were around maybe a little bit more than others? And then, and then we'll pull back, okay? Three minutes. Go ahead.
Okay. Hey, real quickly, a show of hands. I'm, I'm just a little curious where we kind of communally fall. Who, who, would, who would say you tended to um, see kind of more of the anger one? How many of you said that that was sort of the emotional response that I saw to suffering and difficulty? Okay, okay. How many would you say um, stuffing? No, it was, it was kind of that stuffing is, okay, that's, well, that's a lot. That's interesting. Kind of the stuffing approach to, to emotional response to suffering. What about the self-pity? That one. Okay, some for that. And then how many would you say, I, I think I saw healthy acceptance over, over, overall. I saw a lot of that. Interesting. As I think about this, I, I, can, totally, I can totally see why people run toward, or why it's safer, easier, I don't know how you'd put it, to go to anger or to go to stuffing or, or to go to this sort of self, self-pity rather than Healthy acceptance. I mean, the reason why healthy acceptance is maybe not the norm, why it's so hard, why, why at times we go, man, that feels really uncomfortable, is because it's so difficult. Who wants to go there, right? I mean, who really wants to, like, wade deep into that lake, right? Oh, grief, that sounds fun. Mourning, oh, whew, you know, that's, that's, that'll be wonderful. No, I mean, that's something that I just, I want to get past. I don't want to, I don't want to be stuck there. I'd rather kind of just get past if there's like a fast food version if there's some way to do it quickly or i'm not i'm not kind of trudging through that lake because it just seems so it can be scary can it in a lot of ways so i can totally see why we would go there now think with me for just a minute about about some just some of the number of, of losses that that we sort of just accumulate like stack up over our lifetime uh, devastating losses, a lot of them. And they could include like the death of a child. It could be the premature death of a spouse. It could be some sort of like a, like a physical or even emotional or mental disability that we struggle with. It could be a divorce that, that we've gone through. It could be rape. It could be emotional or sexual abuse. It might be some sort of irreversible cancer or maybe a disease. It could be infertility 
could be some, some shattering of, of, of like a lifelong event, something that you've always, or lifelong dream rather, could be a suicide in your life. Maybe, maybe, maybe being betrayed by someone that is, that is just so, so close to us. It could be a miscarriage of a child. Maybe a discovery that, that one of our role models, someone who has been so huge in our life, really was corrupt and, and broken in ways that, that were hidden for so long. Proverbs 14.10 reads this, Each heart knows its own bitterness, and no one else can share its joy. Each heart knows its own bitterness. No one can share its joy. There's a, there's a, there's a unique individuality to my losses versus your losses. And, and we can empathize as best as we can, but there is an individuality to how we experience the stacking up of, of deep losses in our life. I will never fully understand or comprehend yours, and you will never fully comprehend mine. Or sometimes we tend to think, well, gosh, you know, my, my losses are really kind of insignificant compared to those losses. And so, and so we tend to stuff them because we go, well, gosh, mine aren't on, you know, I've got different levels, like there's these bad ones in there and these. Man, I haven't had those. And, and so we tend to kind of stuff them and not really respond to them. But the truth is, pain is pain. Um, pain, it's, it, it's like a gas. It, it fills a room no matter how, how heavy it is, right? No matter how thick it is, it fills a room. And that's how pain is. Even lighter pain, or that you might say, well, in comparison to that person's, it's not that bad. I shouldn't grieve. I shouldn't mourn. Well, no, pain is pain. And, and, it, and it's equally important to, to mourn. It's equally important to grieve regardless of what the pain is. And when we don't, again, we tend to stuff it. Peter Scazzaro, we did a series uh, a few years ago, a Wednesday nights called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And Peter Scazzaro, who, who was um, the author of a book that we kind of went through, he says, when we do this, when we have these kind of categories of, ah, these are kind of lesser pains, so I'm really not going to go into any sort of a process of mourning or grief or sorrow or anything. He says, what those li- they're like, instead of boulders, we go, ah, they're just rocks, they're small, no big deal. He said, those rocks gather in our souls like, like heavy stones that weigh us down. And so what, the, what it does is it sort of keeps us from really walking in wholeness, walking as a disciple of Christ, walking in healthy relationships with others or with God or even ourselves. But there are those, the, those natural losses, those things that you might kind of go, ah, they're just they're rocks, they're not that big of a deal. Um, maybe, maybe you graduate from high school or college and, and you lose your, your financial security or you lose some of the emotional security from that. Aging, I mean, you just, you're just looking at yourself in the mirror more. I, I remember when I was a kid, one of my first memories, not first memories, but I remember this era of life really well, and like picking gray hair out of my dad's hair, like he would go, here boys, you know, like, and, and we loved it because we're like, cool, because a little bit of pain involved and you kind of, you see the winds. And I'm to, the, I'm, I'm to the phase now where I can't, like, pluck anymore. I can cover it up with gel is, like, the best I can do. So a couple times, you know, my kids, I'll be like, hey, bro, you want to pluck some hairs? And she's like, yeah. And I see that same look of joy, like, I'm causing dad pain. And I think, seasons of life, baby, it's time. Here it is. But, but I mean, seriously, even, even just as age comes, our bodies aren't the same. Our experiences, recovery from illness isn't quite. Even those things, there's an appropriate just loss of kind of like, man, it's not, it's not quite like it used to be. Or maybe you move away, like you, you relocate. And just the friendships aren't the same. The, friend, the close friendship that you had, it just, it's there, but it just kind of weakens by distance and time. Or maybe um, relationships don't, just, just don't work out as you hoped. There was, there was that someone, and you thought, this is it. And it, it just, it turns. It just goes a little bit of a, of a different direction. Or maybe your children grow up. And, and they're not as dependent. And you remember when they were, like, healthily dependent. And you just almost get a sense of, like, I don't have purpose anymore. I don't have meaning because you found so much beauty and purpose in that. Or maybe in your job there's a leadership change. I know people would say, man, I had this boss and it was just so good. It was so healthy for years. And, and then he, he got transferred and it's like, it's just so different now. I don't enjoy my job. It's a struggle. That's a loss in your life. Or maybe you're part of some community. Maybe it's a small group that you were in. 
and you go through the 12 weeks and for whatever reason this person steps out or someone else leaves and, and the small group ends and, and you just kind of have that loss of there was something so unique about that dynamic, about you know, the four of us, the eight of us, the 12 of us, that, that was just unique. Maybe you have a grandparent who, who passes away. It was coming, it wasn't a shock, but there's that loss, that hole that's left. Or things that you love, maybe there's a fire we know about fires and floods here in Colorado. Something you loved was destroyed. And it's just, it's just gone. You don't have it anymore. Maybe you have to put a pet to sleep. I was talking to a good friend of mine, Jim, earlier this week. And he posted on Facebook. He said, 12 years. He said, I don't have to get up anymore uh, and, and go let her outside to do her business in the morning. And he goes, and man, I miss it. And he was just sad. And I ran into him a couple days later and I said, I'm so sorry. And as soon as I brought up his dog, I could just see his countenance fall. He's just like, yeah. You know, you get him as a puppy and you know that he's coming, but you just don't think, you just don't think about it. It was a loss. It was a legitimate loss in his life. And here's, here's the point. It's, it's not important to calculate particular losses on some sort of a continuum. Oh, this one's really, really weak. This one's, this one's really bad. Um, it doesn't matter if they're sudden coming or, or if they're gradual, loss is loss. And here's the difficult part to swallow. It's the norm of life. That's, that's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. It's not the exception. It's the norm. And it's, it's going to keep coming. That's what Solomon tells us here. It cannot be avoided. It, that time, that era, is going to hit you in the face. You're going to enter it. Big, small, sudden, immediate process, whatever, it's going to happen. You can't avoid it, but you can live wisely in it. That's his point. You can, as a Christ follower, you can say, I want to be wise. I want to be the kind of person who goes through those things wisely. Well, let me, let me mention a couple, I think I could call them hang-ups, resistances. You might go, okay, yeah, I need to grieve for things, but these are maybe some of your, some of my resistances to really, really doing that. Um, here's, here's maybe one of the biggest ones for me is that when I think about grieving my losses, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes it feels like an interruption to my Christian discipleship. It feels like an interruption to my marriage. It feels like an interruption to my family. It feels like an interruption to my job. It feels like an interruption to looking more like Christ because my discipleship is doing all these great things and accomplishing things for him and being courageous. And, and this is an interruption to that. And so seeing it almost as something like, yeah, I've got to get past that and I can get back to my whole following God thing. I get back to my, you know, whatever it might be. But what, what if, what if, what if grieving is actually part of the process of how God has planned to shape your soul? What if grieving, appropriate mourning, is part of the process of how he's going to make you look like Jesus? A little bit more. See, here's the cost if you avoid it. If you say, don't want to wade into that water, too difficult, yuck, no thanks, all, you know, I've been, I've been doing fine with the whole suppression thing, I think. You know, of course, talk to people around you, they'll disagree. Or, you know, I don't get angry that often, I can, you know, keep it in the background. Here, here are some of the costs if you go down that route and disregard Solomon's advice in the Bible's advice. Number one, if you don't mourn and, and grieve in an authentic way, um, you can't authentically deeply forgive people. You won't be able to forgive people. How important is that in Scripture? Well, Jesus seemed to say, unless you forgive, your Father in Heaven will not forgive you. Oh, that's fairly important, I would say. <laughs> right? But what if, what if n- not engaging in this whole grief mourning thing, I won't be able to forgive. Well, how's that? I'm speaking of grieving from a hurt that another person has done to you, that, that kind of hurt. If someone has hurt you, offended you, damaged you, done something to you, um, if, if you don't really go through the grieving, it's going to be an inauthentic act of forgiveness. Um, Lewis Smead says, I worry about fast forgivers. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I worry, he says, about fast forgivers. What he means is we can often forgive quickly in order to avoid pain. So it's actually a selfish thing. It's not like, oh, I'm so kind and I just forgive you. No, 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 no. I don't want to go into it. 
I don't want to tell you how hurt I am because that will make me insecure and there's a possibility of me being offended again. And if I really think about what it is that they were putting their finger on when they hurt me, it could be a deep scar. That's just uncomfortable. I don't want to go there. So we'll do a quick surface level forgiveness and just I'll just go past it and I'll put it on. No, it's not an authentic forgiveness in that sense. The deeper the wound, the longer the process of forgiveness. That's just the reality. Forgiveness from the heart can be very, very difficult and take a very, very long time. We need to consciously take on the pain, take on the hurt that we feel, and explore it and say, why, do I, why am I so hurt? Because if I don't understand it, I won't forgive it at that depth. Number two, if you don't grieve, if you don't mourn, um, you become more susceptible to reckless sins and addictions in your life. Um, when you don't know how to escape from, from pain of a situation um, and you're not, you're not dealing with it through this sort of healthy acceptance and walking through and saying, well, how does the wise person mourn and grieve and what's, what's that whole process like? When you don't do that, what you will do is you will, you will look for something around you to pacify you. You will look for something around you to just relieve the pain, even for a moment. Gosh, five minutes is good when you're in constant pain. It really is. You'll look for something that'll take it away. And it's usually pleasure. It could be food. It could be something sexual. It could be alcohol. Uh, it could be pills. It could be TV, movies, video games. It could be spending money. It doesn't matter what it is. It's some way that just momentarily for a little bit gets my mind off the pain, the hurt, the betrayal, the exploitation in some way. So I can fall to that. But also it leads to addiction. Now let me, let me, let me give you kind of just a, a basic working definition of kind of how, how addiction works. And a lot of you know much better as to what the nature of it is, what it is even than I do. But addiction, broadly speaking, happens this way. If you've been hurt by someone or something, maybe it's a relationship, what you do is out of fear of being hurt again or in that same way, I suppress my desire for that thing. Okay? If, it's, if I've, been hurt, I've been hurt by the female gender or, or this particular person or a father figure or whatever, I, I'm, I'm worried it's going to happen again. So I, I suppress that natural desire that's appropriately being met by this whatever, and I find something else to latch it onto real quickly. And, I, and I, get that, I get that need met there, that's addiction. That's what it turns into. And then I'm constantly looking for that fulfillment, but I've attached it to something unnatural, a natural desire that's unnaturally attached somewhere else. A third thing that'll happen if you don't really walk through appropriate process of, of grieving and sorrow, if you don't grieve appropriately with, um, and, and share your grief appropriately with others, is that people will... Uh, you, You'll never be truly known. People will never know you. The, the real you will never be experienced and known by another person. And we all, I think, just intuitively want that more than anything else maybe in the world. I want to be known. I want to be known and loved. I want to be known for who I am, but loved for who I am. You'll never really have it. Because, see, the reason no one will really know you is because you don't really know yourself. Because who you are is part of your hurts. That's who you are. You are a result of all of your conscious experiences in life. And your hurts are part of that. And if you don't go into those areas, there, there are all these categories, all these silos of your life that you won't go into, so no one will, else will ever really know. So you're only partially known. You're mostly known. You're someone that never really feels good. We want to be deeply known. That's a desire. Nicholas Wolterstorff this uh, man, he wrote a book about the loss of his son. He had a son who was hiking, and, and, and in this hike fell off, and, and uh, fell off his cliff and died. And he, he wrote this book in this reflection of this deep grief. This man who's this great mind, he's a, he's a passionate follower of Christ. He's a brilliant scholar at an Ivy League university. And he said, if you want to know who I am, you must know that I am one whose son died. You get that? That's who I am. That's part of me. It has shaped me forever. It'll never change. If you want to know me, you have to know that I am one whose son has died. That's a silo in my life that I've opened up. But if I refuse to go into that area, you'll never really know the real me in that way. Let me give you a little experiment. 
Try this sometime. Maybe it's this week. Maybe it's in the coming weeks. If, if, if you have a really close friend, like a, maybe this is like a spiritual friendship you have, or if you're in a very close, intimate, small group, a lot of safety in that group, let me give you an experiment. Make, make a timeline in your life. Okay, draw it out on your own. A timeline in your, in your life from, from birth to now. And, and divide it up into five-year incremental periods. So from zero to five years old, from six to ten years old, from 11 to 15, and so on. In five-year increments. And just identify and describe along that timeline difficulties or sad events. That's it. Just, just identify difficulties in each one of those years or sad events. And if you have, again, an intimate, close friendship, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's, a, uh, again, a spiritual friend... If, if you do this with someone and, and you sit with them, you will learn more about that person in an hour than you could in a year. Because a huge piece of who you are is a result of some of those conscious events which are sad experiences, the difficulties that, that you've encountered. They've, they've shaped you, they've shaped me more than I know, more than you know in many ways. Let me give you the last one. If you don't grieve... Your heart will never fully break in compassion for others. Um, if, if you've ever met someone who has suffered deeply and mourned and grieved with God and with people, close relationships, you've probably met someone who is softer than they were before, um, and, and people find them safe. There's something unique. You can't quite put into words. You, can't, you don't quite know why. But there's something safe about those people. You can go to them with the deepest doubts, the most rocking information, the most startling information, and there's no wide-eyed shock. There's a gentle, There's no quick answer. There's no quoting of Scripture immediately. There's just a quiet. There's a gentleness. They know that grieving doesn't, doesn't end by a philosophical answer. They know that it's an embrace. It's a listening ear. They know it's long and they know it's slow and they're willing to go at that pace. You will only become that kind of person. Scripture speaks of that person as a wise person. The wise person is slow to speak, quick to listen. You'll only become a wise person by developing compassion and you'll only develop compassion by delving into the hurts, the losses in your life in a true healthy sense of of, of mourning and of sorrow. Henry Nowen, who passed away a little while ago, says, there is no compassion without many tears. Second Corinthians 1.3, Paul writes this, talking about this relationship with the whole compassion dynamic. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. The Father, he calls him the Father of compassion. That means that's where it comes from. God is the locus of compassion. And the God of all comfort. And then he says, who does this? This is how God interacts. This is the dynamic of how God works with us. Who comforts us in all our troubles. Okay, that's one side of it. Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. There's this unique thing that happens that when I really go to the depths of some of my sorrows and my brokenness and my hurts, my losses in life, the small ones, the little ones, and the big ones, I become this kind of person who then is like this beautiful tool in God's work belt. And I'm, and I'm sent out to all these different areas that he has designed in, in, my, in my office, in my workplace, in my family, all over. And, and he starts oozing his compassion. It's his deal. But it, but it can come through me because I'm this vessel that now it can come through. There's this ancient idea of how to grieve. Um, go to the Psalms, the book of Psalms, and as you read through it, there's lots of... Psalms is like the most famous book in the Bible. It's, it, it, it's, it's the most loved and adored. 150 different Psalms. And, and the Psalms are categorized. There's, there's Psalms of joy and adoration and all of these sorts of things. And, it, and it's kind of arbitrary. Sometimes there's overlap in which one falls into which category. But if you, if you were to categorize them, do you know which chunk of the Psalms is, is, is the largest? It's actually more than 50% of all of them. 
It's the Psalms of Lament. It's the largest section of the Psalter, these Psalms of Lament. And these Psalms, what they do is they pay attention to the reality that life can be hard, it can be difficult, even brutal. These Psalms of Lament take notice of sometimes almost the apparent absence of God. They oftentimes say, it's like you're not even here. Where are you? These psalms notice when circumstances seem to say, God's not really good. God doesn't really care. God doesn't really have your best interest in mind. And they cry out to God for comfort, for consolence. Listen to just a couple of these. Psalm, psalm 42.3, the author writes, Tears have been my food day and night. Uh, psalm 43.2, Why must I go about mourning oppressed? By my enemy. Psalm 77, 8. His, uh, in his unfailing, has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed all time? Has God for, uh, forgotten to be merciful? Psalm 88, verse 6. You put me in the lowest pit. This is talking to God. You got me here. You put me in this scenario. This is your fault. You put me in the lowest pit. You have overwhelmed me. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, your wrath lies heavy on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. It's really this accusation. It's saying, God, I think this is, I think this is your fault. I'm deeply frustrated. I'm angry with you. My, he's being brutally honest about his emotions toward God. And what I love about these lamentations, these laments, is that the psalmist feels the disappointment with God. The psalmist feels the disappointment before God. It's not going off in the closet and doing it. They're, they're, they're running out to the very edge of the cliff of saying, God, I want to feel this in your presence. I want to feel this before you and with you. And so honesty is huge. Look in the psalms. If, if you have a tendency, if you're a suppressor especially, you will have the, one of the hardest times to have an honest venting experience with God. When you're deeply hurt, when you're deeply frustrated, when you're deeply questioning, and God says, come to me and talk, you will tend to come to him and give us sort of uh, things you think you should say, things, things that you know, would be good to say in church, you know, kind of things you've heard in Sunday school, oh, God, can I trust you? Even though they don't at all reflect what's going on in your heart. Totally inaccurate. And yet, you know, Psalm chapter 88, scholars say, is the saddest psalm in the whole Bible. Because there's no good end. A lot of the psalms that are lament start like, God, I'm frustrated, I'm ticked off. And they end with this sort of like, but man, I'm trusting in you. Psalm 88 doesn't end that way. It ends in the Hebrew with the word darkness. With this phrase in English, we, we translate it. He says, um, darkness is my closest friend. Isn't that interesting? It's a forceful, blunt way of saying you are not God. You're not my closest friend. Absolute darkness is my closest friend. The reason it's powerful, again, is feeling this with God. Feeling it before God. Why is that so important? Listen to Proverbs 15:11. It says, death and destruction, that's all the evil, that's all those silos of hurt, all the little boulders, the little rocks, the big boulders. Death and destruction lie open before the Lord. And then he says, how much more do human hearts? Wow. God knows where your heart is at anyway. One of the things that I love about the Psalms, including all these, I think one thing that God is saying, again, do, do people go to a place where they, they say things that are inaccurate about God? Has God really done this? Yeah. But God says, I want to include this in my Bible because I want you to see that it's okay. I can handle your anger. I can handle your disappointment. I can handle your frustration. It's not unbiblical to cry. You ever think about this? Look at Jesus. You ever think about the fact that Jesus is crying all the time? Like he does. He cries a lot. He's called in Scripture a man of sorrows. Right? He's always he's going around crying. He's crying at this funeral. He's crying over the city of Jerusalem. He's crying at this place. He's, he's always constantly crying. Did he have a good relationship with God? Yeah, I'd say so. Pretty good, right? He was crying because he was perfect, not because he was imperfect. 
The closer you get to looking like Jesus, the more your heart's going to be broken over brokenness. The closer you get to your soul looking like Christ, the probably the more you're going to cry. Because you're going to be bothered, you're going to be hurt by things that before looked quite normal to you, looked quite mundane. And now you realize how deeply broken they are. How much it absolutely destroys. Look, look at Jesus. Let me, let me close with this. One of, one of my favorite uh, kind of children's stories is, is one that George MacDonald wrote. George MacDonald was kind of a hero of, of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis uh, found MacDonald, and, and he was one of the people, yeah, through his writings, and it helped him come to faith. And MacDonald tells the story of what's called the princess and the goblin. Um, the story is of this eight-year-old little princess, and, and she's, she's living alone in, in this palace on this large, huge mountain. And inside the mountain... Are, are these race of goblins who hate her father. Her father is the king. And, he, and they hate all her descendants, and so they come up with this plot to kidnap her because there's nothing that would hurt the king more than taking his beloved daughter. Well, there's an old grandmother in the story, and she finds out about this plot of the goblins. She knows of the danger, and she, she gives a ring to the little princess, the little eight-year-old girl, and there's, there's a string attached to it. It's a thread, but it's a magical thread. You can't see it, but you can feel it. And you put your finger on it, you feel it, but you can't see it in any way. And um, the grandmother says at one point, but remember, it may seem to you a very roundabout way indeed, but you must never doubt the thread. What she's saying is, if you're ever lost... If you're ever in a cave, if you're ever taken by the goblins, if anything bad happens to you, if a time comes, use this thread. And no matter where you think it's taking you, trust the thread. Because it will always lead you back to the right place. And the thread constantly leads her in the opposite direction than what she expects. She thinks, oh, clearly the thread will lead me this way. And what? Leading me here? This doesn't make any sense. And so... Um, it begins by directing her up the mountain and then into a hole into the mountain, into total darkness. And she has to get down low because it's this tiny little cavern and she's crawling on her hands and he's further and further into the darkness, into this great hollow, through narrow passageways she wanders. And she begins to wonder, will I ever get out of here? Am I ever going to get out of this darkness? Finally, it leads her to a huge heap of stones like a wall, it's closed off. Stones have sort of closed off, and she just starts to cry. And because the thread is going into all of these little stones, and she thinks, this is, per- this is pointless, I shouldn't have followed, I shouldn't have followed this thread. But she begins to remove the stones, one by one by one, very slowly, and she finds her good friend trapped on the other side of this wall. And as they find their way out of the mountain... He, he argues that, that she's leading them in, in, in directions by which they'll never escape the darkness. It just doesn't seem reasonable to go that way. And the princess whispers at one point, I know that, but this is the way my thread goes, and I must follow it. Even though it goes against her natural instincts, she obeys and she follows the thread. And real slowly, over time, around turns and corners and through walls of boulders and all this stuff, her fear of danger just real slowly, real incrementally begins to calm because she knows that her all-knowing grandmother is guiding her with this thread. And eventually in the story, the goblin's plan is, is found out and they're exposed and defeated. Being a disciple, being an apprentice of Jesus means following the thread. And it's sometimes going to lead you into like really dark places that you go, man, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go into that place in my life. That doesn't seem very reasonable. It's, it, it's going to lead you into grief. And the world around you will say, run. Something inside you will say, run. Don't go there. Grieving does not shrink your soul because our souls are elastic. Grieving expands your soul. It is good for your soul to grieve. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, as we think about the role of greeting plays, God, when we really think critically about it, we see that we're going to hit those times, as Solomon talks about in our life, that, that is going to be deep, deep catastrophic loss. It's going to be tiny little adding up of stones and boulders, tiny losses, but they add up and it will create this weight in our souls. And God, we do not want to live the kind of, of life which isn't whole. It's not full. It's the kind of life that that stuffs and it, it, it doesn't go there for fear of what it will be like. And then maybe we respond in anger. We live out of the sense of grumbling. Or maybe we pacify and we find other areas. But God, we don't really enter into the path of wisdom. Which would say mourn. It would say grieve. Before God. Do it with God in all honesty. Surround yourselves with that happy few that we talked about a few weeks ago. The band of brothers. The, the close spiritual friendships where there's transparency and honesty. And God, may we do that in those places so that we can be known, so you can develop deep hearts of compassion with us, God, so we can be people who authentically give forgiveness, because that's an act of God to those in our lives. And so, Father, as we think about this, help us not to just see this as a selfish endeavor. It's not about me getting whole, though that's a big piece. But, God, this is ultimately about looking like Jesus. This is an act of apprenticeship. It's an act of discipleship and following Christ. And so we enter into these areas of our lives. God, for those who who are just hearing this, maybe this freaks them out. They're a little nervous. Would Would you give a boldness? Would you just breathe assurance into them, God, that they can follow the thread? And God, we thank you for that thread which is Christ. We do follow, not always understanding, but thank you that you are all-knowing, all that you've defeated every goblin, and we have nothing to fear. And we pray this in the strong name of our King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, our prayer team's going to be up front. Um, as always, feel free to hang around, to hang out. If you brought your, your offering, if you came prepared for that, we have the offering at the back. You can, you can drop that in there. Um, grab some cookies and coffee on your way out. Love you guys so much. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for being a part of Wednesday Night Community. See you guys next week.